In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, how will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child, will be, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth, in her old age, has also conceived a son. And this will be the sixth month with her, who is called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. This is God's word. It is true, and it is given out of his love. You may be seated. Oh, you're ended. All right. Thanks so much, Emily. Uh, just like her excitement and her voice, we're really excited about this opportunity to partner with the school here that is so gracious to us to allow us to use their building week in and week out. So um, again, we'll be set up out there. If there's any questions, you can see myself, Emily, uh, and anyone. They'll be at the table there uh, by the entry into the church. Um, my name is Brandon. I'm really excited this morning to introduce a guest preacher we have here. Um, Andy has been with us a few times in the past, and he's going to bring the word again this morning. Um, the Schultz family, unfortunately, are sick. Uh, they came down with COVID this week, and so we are asking for prayers for them. Uh, they're doing well right now. I know that this morning their, their hearts are saddened that they're not here. Advent season is one of the most precious times uh, for them and for the church. Um, and so they are, they are saddened not to be here uh, physically, but, but uh, they are, I know they're praying for each and every one of you guys in, in the seats uh, in, in the gym here right now. So um, let's lift them up in prayer uh, this week and as we go so that they can heal and just uh, feel better as, as this Christmas season is upon us. Um, but with that being said, we are blessed that Andy, uh, last minute, was able to come down here from Denver and bring the word for us this morning. Um, Andy, one of the first times he was here when, when uh, the Schultz family was on an extended break this summer, um, he put in his introduction that he is the president of the Colbert <laughs> Schultz Fan Club. Um, which would, I guess, hopefully would just make me vice president, but um, that's a, a big role. But he, he and uh, Colbert, you know, met through Acts 29. Uh, Andy is a co-pastor at Oaks Church up in Denver, um, and he is fantastic. We are so glad to have him here this morning. So I will stop talking and, and let Andy come up here, but we thank you, Andy. Yeah, thank you. All right, I'm 6'4". This is not going to work right here. Hold on just a second. All right. 
Yeah, Colbert, <clears throat> Colbert texted about two days ago, and he said, I think I have COVID. Do you, you, would you be up for preaching on Sunday? And I said, would you get tested? And he said, I got tested. I don't have the results yet. I'll tell you, I'm 100% positive that the test is going to be positive, but we'll wait till we get the official word. Uh, and so I went ahead and sent in all my sermon notes, and then yesterday got a text. Okay, the test is positive. Come on. Uh, <laughs> come on to Falcon. So I'm thrilled to be here with you. Uh, our, the, I've uh, been a part of urban church planting in the core of uh, near downtown Denver for the last uh, 10 and a half years. And right now I'm currently co-pastoring a church called the Oaks Church, uh, which is about two, two and a half years in and having a lot of fun with that. And we meet in the evenings. So this works out very well. So I got a full day ahead, but I'm thrilled to be with you guys this morning. I am hopped up on coffee right now and will need to stay that way throughout the rest of the day. Um, Actually, I was uh, working on um, this sermon. Uh, at Starbucks. I go to Starbucks, and I don't practice out loud because they would kick me out. I would come off very crazy. I don't think you can proselytize out loud at uh, Starbucks. But I, I was looking at it and was looking at it intensely and probably was doing something like this silently. And there was a, a young man. Um, I didn't get all of his backstory, um, but uh, came here apparently from Africa um, and was looking for a job. And as I was, I didn't have any background with him. We're just sitting near each other. And he said, you're looking really intense at those papers. And I said, oh, yeah, it's a, a, a sermon. And, and uh, he said, what's that? And like a speech? I said, yeah, it's like a speech you give in church. I'm a, I'm a pastor. And he said, oh. And he said, I thought this was a great question, not knowing me, just initiating a conversation. He said, what's the point of a sermon? What's the goal? I said, oh, so that is such a great question. Whoa. Uh, the goal of a sermon <laughs> is to engage the hearts and minds of the listeners so they'll see how great God is and all he's done for them. And so if they're struggling with, struggling with anxiety or they're believing wrong things or feeling wrong things or doing wrong things, they can see how great God is, all he's done, how much better what he has for them is than their own plan. And they'll be captivated by that and believe in him more and love him more and become more and more like him. I think that's the aim. And he said, all that's on that paper right there? And I said, well, uh, that's the aim of what's on the paper. Uh, we need God's help for that to take root and do its work. So um, let's do that this morning. Let's, let's, we're in Advent. I love this passage. Such a familiar passage. I hope maybe you won't gloss over because it's so familiar. There's a, there's a number of astounding things that should grip our attention and affection as we go. So let's go slowly through this passage. Whether you've, uh, this is your first time in church or whether you've heard this story a thousand times. I hope that we'll see it with fresh eyes this, this morning. So I really have two points this morning. They're really simple. The first is we're going to see, uh, we're going to be astounded, as, as Mary is, astounded by God's gracious calling. Astounded, astonished, and marvel at it, at this astounding calling on Mary's life. And we'll relate that to how this relates to us and the gracious calling we've all been given. So first, we're just going to be astounded with Mary by God's gracious calling. And then secondly, we're going to see how she responds to it. And then our second movement will be to look at how she sur surrenders to God's gracious calling and how we're called to surrender to God's gracious calling. So being astounded and then responding, being uh, uh, surrendering. All right, so let's jump in the text. We're in Luke's Gospel, chapter 1, verse 26. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the, of the house of David, and the virgin's name 
was Mary. All right, so this verse sets the stage. It gives us the who, what, when, where of this uh, account. And right away, rather than just skimming over it, let's pause and let's, let's zero in, let's zoom in, because there's a massive contrast happening uh, uh, here. This is a surprising contrast between Gabriel and, and Mary and Joseph, between Gabriel and angel sent from God's presence with this royal announcement to deliver this message to whom? To nobodies from nowhere. All right? So let's start with Mary and, and Joseph, the two nobodies. They were, what do we know about them? Well, they were Jewish. They were the nation of Israel in the first century. So that means they were a conquered, from a, they belonged to a conquered people, a subjugated people under the cruel uh, tyranny of the Roman Empire. They were a conquered, subjugated, poor and powerless people. They weren't just poor and powerless, they were also young. Biblical historians say that that women in the first century usually got married around age 15, 16, or 17. So Mary is somewhere in this uh, mid-teenage years. Um, And then also they were from an insignificant backwater town, uh, Nazareth, uh, from uh, the region of of Galilee. I'm sorry, Galilee, city of Galilee, uh, Nazareth. So from this region, so they're from Nazareth. It's a, it's, a, it's a no-name backwater uh, town. In fact, you might remember in uh, John's Gospel, uh, when Jesus calls um, Philip, calls him to follow him. Philip goes and gets Nathan- to tell Nathaniel, hey, I think I found the Messiah. And he says, oh, uh, where's, he, where's he from? He goes, his name's Jesus. He's from, he's from Nazareth. And you remember uh, Philip's response? <laughs> Did anything good ever come out of Nazareth? A Messiah from Nazareth? Are you serious? Okay, I'll come, I'll come see this with my own eyes. Right? So, um, so th- that's, that's what we have. It's two nobodies from nowhere. Um, and, and one more detail given in this introduction. Mary and Joseph were betrothed. Really similar to engagement today, if you're engaged to be married. It was actually more binding and more serious of a social construct if you were engaged or betrothed and you broke off that betrothal. The only reason you could break off the betrothal was for um, adultery for cheating sexually outside the betrothal. And to do that, you had to go before the courts and get it legally annulled. So it was actually a big deal. You couldn't just behind the scenes take your ring off. It was, there actually would be sort of a public trial that went along with that. So, so that's what we know about Mary and Joseph, two nobodies from nowhere. So while Mary and Joseph live at the, the lowest point of the social ladder, you can't go any higher than Gabriel. Uh, Gabriel, an angel from God's presence. In the Old Testament, Gabriel was mentioned. There's actually only two angels ever mentioned by name in the scripture, and Gabriel is one of those. And so, so what we've got to see here is this is a profound moment in redemptive history because at this time, God has not spoken in over 400 years. The last time God spoke was through the prophet Malachi, and since then, God has not engaged with his people. He has not spoken through a prophet through an angel, there's been no other, other scripture, uh, there's just been silence from God, and God had made all these promises about sending a Messiah and rescuing his people, and, and this, this Messiah, this king, not just a king, but a, a, the king to which all other, the king to end all kings, who would come and flood the world with God's presence and God's blessing, one that would crush Israel's enemies and, and restore and reconcile them. That's what they're waiting on, but now we're at 400 years of silence, and now all of a sudden, God's speaking again. Just real quick, 400 years, just let's, get, let's just get a, uh, just try to get a, a, a feel for that kind of 
time frame, the kind of uh, historical distance. So right now, you and I, we live in the 2020s. Let's subtract 400 years from that. That would take us to the 1620s, right? 20 minus 4. Oh, yeah, okay. 1620s. What happened in the 1620s? Well, that's when the Mayflower set sail for America. So the historical distance from today to the Mayflower was the historical distance from Gabriel finally appearing on the scene to announce the birth of Jesus to the last time God spoke or engaged with his people. Talk about that kind of distance. So this is a, a profound moment. And he's going to deliver this message of global, actually cosmic significance to these two nobodies. That's just, but so it is. So let's take a look. Let's hear his royal announcement, starting with verse 28. Here's his greeting for his royal announcement. Verse 28. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. So let's look at that greeting. Uh, Greetings, O favored one. Don't be afraid, you found favor. You see the repetition of that word favor? Oh, favored one, don't be afraid, you found favor. Now I wouldn't, I was trying to think, what is that word? Where else do we see that? So I looked it up in Greek. I have a little working knowledge of Greek, not a ton. But anyway, I looked it up, and it was the word charis. That's one of the words I know for sure. It's just the word we translate for grace. If you were to do a wooden literal translation of this, it would sound like greetings, O one who found favor. You have found, I'm, I'm sorry, greetings of one who's uh, received grace. Uh, you've found grace with God. Grace, grace. That's how, he, that's how he, he does this introduction. So don't be afraid why God is near you and his heart pulses with grace for you. So what is, what's grace? Well, when I explain it to my kids, I just call it undeserved kindness. It's unmerited, undeserved, unearned goodness and blessing from God, just undeserved, unearned kindness. So how does this message begin? Greetings. God is lavishing you with sheer, unearned, undeserved kindness and goodness. Don't be afraid. Why? God is near you and his heart pulses with grace for you. That's the intro. How does she receive this? Look at her response. She's greatly troubled. And I like the second verb. It said she tried to discern. In the Greek, this word is, uh, the, the Greek lexicon said that, that the meaning of this word is to think about thoroughly, consider carefully, reason out inwardly, ponder, make sense of. It's actually an accounting term that means to, to, to balance accounts. It's a deep intellectual focus and reasoning. So why is she so perplexed and taking such a deep dive and trying to wrestle with this? What is it about this that's so astounding causes her to discern deeply? Well, I think it's simply that what Mary's struggling with is, why is this angel greeting me with that same exalted language that down through the Old Testament, the way that angels always greeted the great heroes of, of, of Jewish history, the great heroes of the Old Testament before God did something massive for his people? Why is he greeting me this way? This is how you'd greet Abraham or, 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 or Moses or Joshua. This is, why is a greeting from Gabriel, from the old, this famous angel from the Old Testament coming to me? How's this happening? Why well, am I the chosen recipient for this glorious royal announcement? All right, so let's just pause and maybe with the Spirit's help we can be freshly astounded 
by grace. Let me just ask you to pause for a moment. Have you ever deeply just paused and like her wrestled and reckoned with and thought through deeply the astounding nature of grace? The fact that you've received grace, this the shocking counterintuitive nature of grace, the absurdity of undeserved kindness that you and I get. I mean, think about it. Everything in the world works in this sort of reciprocal way. Everything in this world, every kind of system and culture is transactional. I do this, and you do this back uh, for me. If I do enough, if I work hard enough, then I earn this status, or earn this paycheck, earn this honor. If I work hard enough, if I put, you know, pull the right levers and push the right buttons and put myself to it, then I arrive here, and that's what I deserve. And if I don't, then I don't deserve that. I don't get the reward. Maybe I get, get, get punished or, or I'm, I'm in lack or I, I'm, I'm pushed to the margins. I mean, that's the way life works is this for that, tit for tat, reciprocal back and forth. That's how the world works. And then we go to the gospel and, and first the spirit reveals to us that we're sinners, that we can't measure up. There's a standard that you and I, no matter how hard we work, won't reach, that we can't fully obey and love God. Actually, we violated God's law. If he was just, he would have to you know, bring his judgment on us if he's, if he's just and true to his word. And we see that we don't deserve any of his approval. And then we go to the gospel and see that Jesus goes to the cross and is treated the way you and I deserve to be treated so that you and I can be treated the way he deserves to be treated. And there's just something in us that says, what? That's not the way the world works. And God comes to us by word of the gospel and says, yeah, yeah, this message isn't from this world. It's from heaven to earth. And it's turning this upside down world right side up. Yeah, it's not. Yeah, the world doesn't work this way. That's why it's so astounding. That's why it's so paradigm shattering. That's why it's the most beautiful and powerful message that's ever been spoken in our world. I mean, have you been freshly astounded by God's gracious calling to you? That all the the delight and approval that God the Father feels for his son, he feels for you because you are in him and all his perfect righteousness and perfect obedience has been credited to your bankrupt account, and you'll be with him forever? Are you astounded by that? By God's great, but with the help of God's spirit, hopefully we, we would be. I like what Tim Keller says. He has this simple little phrase. He says, there should be no um, of courseness in how we think about the fact that we're Christians. No of courseness. So if someone asks you, are you a Christian? And your reply is simply, of course. He said, somebody who replies that way, it's a sure sign they probably have never really gotten it. But when you say, of course, of course, I, I, I go to church. I'm a good family person. I pay my taxes. I do, uh, give to some charities. I, I don't do those things. Those people do. It's hard work. It's sacrifice. But of course, of course. That's a sure sign we've never gotten it. But there should be no of courseness to those who've really been freshly astounded by grace. That when someone asks you, are you a Christian, our response should be more like, yeah, can you believe it? Even, even me. Apparently, anybody can get in on this because I'm one. It's, it's really a miracle. It's really a miracle because I wasn't looking for him. I, was, I wasn't about me going after him. He came after me. He drew me. He gave me eyes to see and new affections for him that I, I never could grip my teeth and create. It's sheer grace. So there's no of courseness in this passage at all, not with Mary's response. And as we look at our, the grace we've received, there should be no of courseness in us 
as well. But as we look back at the scriptures, maybe it shouldn't shock us in some ways. Because not only can God use the unlikely and the undeserving, it appears to me that that's all he uses. Challenge me on this. Go check it out. Look at the biggest moments of redemptive history. When he came to Abraham to give this promise to him, the launch pad of God's redemptive plan to renew all creation. Abraham was a elderly, pagan, moon-worshipping shepherd. He wasn't looking for him. When he comes to Moses to rescue his people out of slavery, he was a murderer on the run, hiding out in obscurity at the burning bush. When Jesus comes along, who's he go after? The elite, the top religious minds, the top intellectual minds? No, uneducated fishermen. Anti-establishment rebels and pro-government tax collectors. And later in Jesus, when he's ascended to the Father and is going to continue the the movement of his church. Who does he go after? Saul, the number one persecutor of the church. It appears that grace doesn't say anything about us, but it tells us about the heart of God. It's actually not something in us, but something in him. His heart overflows with grace for the unlikely and undeserving. He loves to use nobodies from nowhere. It's sort of his thing. It's what he seems to do. The more deeply you ponder the more awe and a wonder is awakened and the more miraculous it all truly is. All right, that was just his greeting. Let's get to the content of Gabriel's message. Verse 31. And behold, you'll you'll conceive in your womb. Here's the message. He just set it up. I have a message of grace for you, a calling of astounding grace. Here's the message. Behold. I love that word behold. It's kind of like, get ready. I'm about to say something that's going to blow your socks off. Behold. Like, brace yourself. (laughs) You'll conceive in your womb and bear a son, and and, and you shall call his name Jesus, verse 32. He'll be great. He'll be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he'll reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there'll be no end. So every word of of this announcement, every, every word, every phrase is an echo of the great promises God has made to his people that he would one day send a king through the line of David, to rescue his people, to, to redeem this, this world. And, and he wouldn't just rule over Israel, but he'd rule over the whole world. And he wouldn't just rule for a while, his throne would be forever. And, and so um, as with a good deal of New Testament language about Jesus, this is theological dynamite and it's political dynamite. It's both. Uh, it's astounding in both ways. It's theological dynamite because in some unique way, Gabriel's revealing to Mary that in some unique way, the creator God of the universe is entering the stage of human history in and through his son. In some way, he's the son of God, and there's some, the presence of God will be with Jesus in a way that the presence of God has never entered our reality. All right? And then it's a huge, it's, it's political dynamite too, because it's also saying he is the true ruler over all tribes, tongues, and nations, over all peoples, which leaves Caesar and all the jealous, tyrannical leaders of this world far behind. And there'll be a price on Jesus' head from his arrival as a baby. So it's theological and political dynamite. Let's look at Mary's response. Verse 34. And Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I'm a, a, a virgin? She's probably thinking, I don't think I can have this child until I get married. How's that going to work? How's, how? This is sort of a how question. I don't think it's a doubting question. But she's re- rejecting the announcement. But sort of, can you help me make sense of this how? I mean, Joseph, Joseph and I can have a baby 
uh, after our wedding date. That sounds good. I'm planning on having babies, on having a family with Joseph. That sounds great. So I think your, your timeline might be out of whack, Gabriel. I'm not quite yet married. But yeah, we'll have, some, we'll have children, and, and great, one of them can be this, this Jesus. Verse 35, and the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. The angel here declares that Jesus, this Messiah, will have a human mother, Mary, but his father will be God himself. He'll actually be conceived by the Holy Spirit. So um, this mystery of the incarnation is so profound, it's hard, it's hard to put into human language. So I'm going to do a silly, oversimplified definition, and then I'm going to give you J.I. Packers, which is more brilliant and astute than anything I could ever write. The simple one, I was explaining to the kids, we were do, going to a, a little event where you drive in your car and look at lights, and um, on the way I thought, all right, we need to like redeem this moment, have a gospel moment. And I said, kids, why are we going to look at Christmas lights? What's the point of Christmas? And they all got the answer wrong and felt very ashamed. <laughs> Lights and gifts and candy. No, no, I mean like the, the, the spiritual, you know, remember Jesus. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Jesus, you know, <laughs> like, okay, but more like what happened? What's the event? And I, so I thought I got to put this, in, I want to put this in some kind of sticky way they'll remember. So I said, if you guys, you know, when we, uh, we live in a, a part of town that's very diverse, uh, we're, we're kind of, we're, we're, we're a white family. I don't know if you talk about looking at me. We're a white family. Uh, our neighborhood is Hispanic and Vietnamese primarily. There's a number of great Hispanic restaurants and uh, often, yeah, the, the waiters, the people there don't, don't speak uh, English, and so it's really interesting. So I said, hey, you know when we get a burrito with chili con carne? So remember when I explained to you how that meant uh, ch- chili uh, with meat, you know, with beef? I said, well, what happens at Christmas is the incarnation. And that same word, carne, meat, is God taking on meat. It's God with meat, with carne. In other words, it's, he doesn't lose any of his divinity, but he adds humanity it's God con carne. And I don't know, it sounds a little sacrilegious, but they all kind of got it and laughed, and they'll remember it, okay? <laughs> Let's go to J.I. Packer for a much less heretical explanation of the incarnation. <laughs> the really staggering Christian claim. I love J.I. Packer, guys. Just, this paragraph is just gold, every word of it. The really staggering Christian claim is that Jesus of Nazareth was God-made man. So that Jesus of Nazareth was as truly and fully divine as he was human. It is here in the thing that happened at the first Christmas that the profoundest and most unfathomable depths of the Christian revelation lie. The word became flesh. God became man, the divine son became a Jew. The Almighty appeared on earth as a helpless human baby, unable to do more than lie and stare and wriggle and make noises, needing to be fed and changed and taught how to talk like any other child, and there was no illusion or deception in this, the babyhood of the Son of God. All right, as the Apostles' Creed faithfully articulates, Jesus will be conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, fully man and truly God. So as she hears more of the plan that she's going to have a child before being married, apart from being with Joseph or any man, she responds honestly, how will this be? This is, an, uh, this is the astounding, part of the astounding nature of this gracious calling. How? It's her way of saying, this sounds crazy. Are you sure? I mean, modern people, we often have a faulty assumption 
the ancient peoples would hear something like this and just adopt a myth and just take it as reality and that it wouldn't challenge their belief structure. But that is not a right way of, of looking at that. I mean, yes, us as modern people, we are more preconditioned to reject supernatural claims than ancient peoples, that is true. But she was just as preconditioned to reject the idea that the creator God of the universe was going to come from heaven to earth, take on humanity, and be born as a baby. That was just as astounding and outside of her sphere of how she understood how the world worked as it is for us. And she's responding the way you and I would. She's bringing her full intellect into this and asking questions about the outrageous, astounding nature of the angel's words. It was just as challenging to her belief system. It's just as miraculous to her then as it is to us now. Now, it's true that you, um, that, I mean, Joseph and Mary weren't country bumpkins that didn't know how babies are made or where babies came from. They might not have been able to articulate X and Y chromosomes and how that worked, but they knew if someone showed up pregnant and said, it just happened spiritually, apart from any human dad, they knew that either this couple was together prior to their wedding date, or maybe one of the, the fiancé was going behind her, or her husband's, future husband's back in some way. Um, this is completely astounding and outside of their framework for how they see how the world works. So look at how the angel ends his royal announcement in responding to Mary's astonishment. Verse 37, for nothing will be impossible apart from God. He's saying, yes, this is humanly impossible. And what's about to happen on the stage of human history is God's about to make the humanly impossible possible. Mary, in your life, uh, through his power, God's going to do the humanly impossible. So there's no mistake who brings salvation there's no, there's no mistake on, on who gets the glory, God and God alone. This is his work and his work alone, and he gets all the glory. All right, so we're done with our first point, this, this, uh, just being astounded at God's gracious calling. Now let's look at surrendering or how we respond, how we receive uh, the gracious calling. How, what, how, what should our response, what should our reaction be? So what will this mean? Let's consider what will this mean for Mary. Before we look at her response, let's ask what will this mean for Mary, for her life? When she's been processing deeply, thinking it through, how will this change the script that she's imagined for her life? If you've ever, if you're married today or engaged, you know when you're engaged, you begin to daydream about what life will look like, what it'll be like to be married one day and to have kids. She's had daydreams for her life. Well, this message from Gabriel wrecks all that. It's not going to look, that, it's not going to follow that script. She really can't know what it'll mean. But this is an honor and shame-based society, and to show up pregnant before getting married, to live your life with a dark cloud of shame hanging over you, to have the scarlet letter of her day on her, she's already at the bottom, the lowest point of the social ladder. If she receives the message, she'll have to go even lower, even lower than she had planned. And will her fiancé want to be engaged to her, or will he publicly shame her and divorce her? We know Joseph doesn't end up doing that, but at this point, we can't know. She can't know. She doesn't know. This is a call to step into the darkness, to the unknown, no matter what the cost. I mean, being a single mom, I don't know if you guys, if there's any single moms here, but being a single mom in the 21st century is in, makes life incredibly difficult. I got four kids. I can't imagine doing it on my own. In the first century, it was a social death sentence, the path to being permanently isolated at the margins. So what will all this mean? She doesn't know. She can't know. God's asking her to follow his plan into the darkness, into the unknown, no matter what the cost. What's her response going to be to this calling? 
What's her response? Now, earlier, remember when I said, when you say behold, I like that word because it kind of says like, brace yourself. Get ready for this. You're not going to believe what I'm about to say. This is going to astound you. I love that Mary, her response, verse 38, starts with behold. It's like, behold, I hear your message. But get ready. Here's something I have to say. Mary said, behold, I am a servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. That's all the angel needs to hear. And he departs from her. Don't you hear echoes of all the great Old Testament saints here? How God's faithful have always responded when God gave them a gracious calling, but it meant following him into the void, into the unknown, no matter what the cost. Think about Esther when she said, if I perish for my people, then I perish. Or like Ruth, as she said to Naomi, Hey, wherever you go, I'll go. Where you stay, I'll stay. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. I'm with you to the end. Or Job, as he was suffering with no explanation, suffering unimaginable griefs, says to God, even if he kills me, I will hope in God. In many ways, Mary surrendering her will to God's will will actually take her on a path of more suffering than she ever anticipated. This is worse than her worst. What happens will be worse than her worst case scenario. Let me explain. One of the hardest things to see as a parent is when your kid gets mistreated. One of the hardest things to do. I was taking my eight-year-old Hudson to school, and we waited in line outside for about 10 or 20 minutes, and some other kids came up and took his hat. It was cold weather, took his hat off his head multiple times and threw it down. And I saw his face get red and scrunch up, and I thought, I'm going to strangle these children. Okay, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Actually, I thought it. <laughs> the hardest thing is to see your child hurt. You would do anything to take that pain for them, off of them, if you could. Nine months later, after Jesus is born, Mary and Joseph take baby Jesus to the temple to be dedicated, and a man named Simeon, who's filled with the Spirit, comes up and prophesies. You might have skipped over this passage. It's not a real popular Christmas passage. But here's what he says. says, uh, This is um, Luke 2, 34, if you'll put that on the screen. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child's appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, a sign that is opposed. In other words, he will be opposed. It will be a life of, of rejection and opposition. Let me start it over. Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for, and for a sign that is opposed. He looks Mary in the eye and says this, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that the thoughts of many may be revealed. What an unusual thing to say at a baby dedication. You guys ever done baby dedications here? <laughs> and a sword will pierce through your soul also. What's Simeon saying, prophesying in the spirit? One day you'll see the unimaginable happened to your son. He's going to come to earth to do nothing but good, and the worst evil will be done. He'll be publicly humiliated and rejected and executed right before your eyes. A sword will be pierced through your soul one day at what will happen to this child. Mary will go lower than her deepest fear. She'll see her son die at a young age, brutally, brutally publicly executed. But Mary's magnificent words not only point back and echo to the declarations of the great saints who trusted God, they actually foreshadow Jesus' words. 33 years from now, the night before the cross, Jesus will be in the Garden of Gethsemane. He'll pray intensely before his Father, and in some mysterious way, 
God gives him a sense of what he'll suffer the next day on the cross. It's this cup. It's this cup of wrath that Jesus can see the full and furious wrath and anger and hatred of all our sin that the next day he would be called to drink it down on the cross in our place. And Jesus pleads with his father three times, is there any other way? Can you take this cup from me? Is there any other way to rescue your people? Is there any other way? And he sweats drops of blood. And finally, in his final prayer, after wrestling and deeply contemplating like Mary did at the call of her gracious calling, says this, Luke 22, 42. Father, if you're willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. He sounds a lot like his mother, doesn't he? I'm a servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. Jesus surrendered his will to step into the darkness and the greatest suffering ever experienced to take our place, to rescue us from eternal death and the eternal life. Mary's, Mary's glorious declaration, behold, I'm a servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. Gloriously foreshadows, Father, if you're willing, remove this cup. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. See, Mary knew that responding to God's gracious calling on her life that meant meant surrendering, that she would go down in the world. But look how far, how much further Jesus went down. The gospel begins with Mary's sacrifice for her son, but it ends with her son's sacrifice for her and for all that would trust in him. He came from heaven to earth, took on our flesh. Look at Philippians 2, 6 through 8. uh, Though he was in the form of God, he didn't count equality God with uh, a thing to be to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Born to Mary and Joseph, two nobodies from nowhere, he'll be born and put into a feeding trough, a manger, and from there his life will only go down further to his death to the cross. So our deep, what you see is we actually have an advantage that Mary didn't have, though. We can go to the vivid gospel accounts and not just see the faith that God demands of us, but we can see what he's done for us in sheer grace. That as he calls us to deny ourselves, take up our cross and follow him, he first shows us how he denies himself, goes to the cross, gives everything he has so he might have us. And Only that kind of sheer, undeserved, paradigm-shattering grace will melt our cold hearts. And awaken love so that we might respond to him. Behold, I'm a servant of the Lord. Let it be for me according to your word. On the cross, he's treated the way you and I deserve to be treated. So that you and I may be treated the way he deserves to be treated. When we see Jesus giving up everything to have us, it awakens our heart in love. For we respond, how can I, give, how can I not give everything I have so that I might have you? Mary's response gives us a great picture of how we can respond to God's gracious, astounding call. Her words paint the picture for what it means to lose our lives for his sake that we might find them, to deny ourselves, pick up our cross, and follow him into the darkness of the unknown, knowing that we have him. In the end, how we respond to grace is not merely giving intellectual assent to theological ideas. Okay, I believe in the virgin birth. Okay, I embrace the incarnation. Okay, I'll trust in the cross. But it's, yes, it is those things, but it's actually following a person. It's actually giving ourselves to him and saying, behold, I'm a servant of the Lord. I'll follow you. Whatever you bring into my life, I'll trust, I'll trust that you're bringing that in and that you'll be enough and to follow him forward. 
When you see Jesus giving up everything he has, it awakens our heart and love. Where we respond, how can I not give up everything I have that I might have you? So I'm going to end. If you put this up on the screen, this is a covenant prayer that John Wesley wrote. And I think it just exemplifies, it sort of fleshes out Mary's words, the foreshadow of Jesus' words, our great servant. And if you want to, I invite you to read these with me. If, if they're a true expression of your faith or where your heart is. And we'll end with this. We'll end with this calling of, we'll end with this response, this surrendering to God's gracious calling. Is it up there, guys? It is, there it is, okay. Read it with me. I am no longer my own, but thine. Put me to what thou wilt. Rank me with whom thou wilt. Put me to doing, put me to suffering. Let me be employed for thee or laid aside for thee. Exalted for thee or brought low for thee. Let me be full, let me be empty. Let me have all things, let me have nothing. I freely and heartily yield all things to thy pleasure and disposal. And now, O glorious and blessed God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, thou art mine and I am thine. So be it. In the covenant which I've made on earth, let it be ratified in heaven. May these words, amen. Yeah. May these words sink deeply into our hearts. May, you know, the, the, today if you're not a believer, the message, the calling for you is to repent and believe the gospel. Today, if you are a believer, the calling is for you to repent more deeply and to believe the gospel more deeply. Same gospel and same response. So this morning, in a fresh way, may we give our lives over to the suffering servant who gave us all to have us. Let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask the Spirit to freshly astound us with grace. Our Father in heaven, You deserve all the glory. For, for anybody here that sees you, that treasures you, that desires you, for anybody here who hates their sin and longs to be free of it, that is a work of your spirit. That is a gift of grace. We don't come there of our own strength and our own wisdom and our own goodness. So Father, would you freshly astound us with grace? Would you help us to see your heart that pounds with grace for us, that overflows with undeserved kindness. And that's exemplified in your son. Thank you for the incarnation. Thank you for our salvation. Thank you for our rescue. If there's any, I ask right now, Holy Spirit, is there any area like an unevangelized region in anyone's soul today? Is there an area where the gospel needs to be freshly applied? Is there an area where we need to bow and surrender and say, I've been holding on to this. I'm letting it go. Behold, I'm a servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And Father, many people in this season might be called to walk, walk through some dark seasons, some unknown. All they know is they have you. All they know is you have their hand. So I pray, Lord, that you would shine light into that and that your nearness would just be palpable to them as you Give them enough light to take one step after the other. And may this season bring them nearer to you. It's in the beautiful name of Jesus we pray. Amen.
So I want us to wrestle with a few of these, these concepts in your uh, discussion time at your tables. I love the format. I've never been to a church that does this format. I think the round table thing is brilliant. Hello that you're doing this. So here's a few questions for you guys to contemplate with me. I'm just going to read them out to you, just sort of open them up, and then, um, then you go from there. So what do you think astounded Mary the most about Gabriel's message to her? She might look back in the passage, reread that, and just say, what do you think stuck out and blew her socks off? <laughs> what do you think was so astounding about Gabriel's message to her? Secondly, reflect on Mary's response to God's calling in her life. Behold, I'm a servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. How do her words foreshadow Jesus' words in the garden of Gethsemane? How does Jesus' bowing his will to the Father's will stir your affections for him? So I pray now that during your time of discussion um, that the gospel will be freshly applied to your heart um, in new and fresh ways. Enjoy this time and in just a moment, someone else will come up, introduce communion, and we'll continue from there. So we're going to head toward communion. Um, yeah. And uh, thank you, Andy. Uh, you know, hearing the word of God always demands a response. It's always true, and it's never neutral. And I think one of those responses is worship. I loved what Andy said about the purpose of a sermon, is to tell people how the scripture reveals God's glory. And uh, our response should be uh, worship, should be surrender. I know it's not always the case. Um, Sometimes we don't feel that, we don't see that, and uh, the glory's there, uh, but we have to, I just want to encourage you that if that's the case, just to pray for uh, God to reveal himself as you approach his word or listen to sermons. I wrote liquid death in my notes. Uh, the other day I was at the store and I saw this big stack of cases of this water liquid death, and I, rem I thought of Andy. It was even before I knew he was going to be speaking, but uh, I think part of our prayer for God to reveal himself, I th thought of the verse, uh, as the deer pants for flowing streams of water, so my heart pants for you, and uh, that should be our approach, and, uh, and when it's not, let's just, I want to encourage you, all of you to pray that, and pray not just for yourself, but for all of us as you come to church, that so we could all experience that. So some of the responses we have here, we can, uh, as the muse explained, there's an opportunity to respond. Uh, we can respond by giving. There's a box in the corner. We can respond by prayer. I'll be in the corner. You can, if you need prayer, you can come, or you can have somebody at your table pray. And as the music plays, we'll have communion. We have the elements on the tables. Uh, here at Missio Day, it, we practice open communion. That means anyone who professes faith in Christ can come to communion. Uh, if that's not you, uh, it's a good time to place your faith, to surrender. Like uh, Andy said, uh, if you're not a believer, now's a good time to repent and believe the gospel. And uh, if you are a believer, it's time to repent more and believe the gospel more and surrender. So, um, uh, Jesus' uh, invitation is for all of us. There's one thing we're really getting a lot out of this uh, gentle and lowly. Is it's for all of us. It's for sinners and sufferers. And uh, we all need uh, that rest that Jesus offers. 
And he said, uh, when he, broke, when he uh, broke the bread, he said, this is my body broken for you. And uh, when he gave the cup, he said, this is my blood shed for you. When you do this, do this in remembrance of me. So just as we come to the table, let's remember Jesus and what he's done for us. And let's remember this call to surrender. Now let me pray. Oh, Lord, uh, thank you. Thank for through this, your love, your sacrifice, your um, absurd offer of grace. And uh, we just thank you and ask that you would help us to see that and have more of it. In Jesus' name, amen.